Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being humble in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. To the end of summer, we're at the end of summer. Um, for many of you, that's a, a thing to be sad about. For many of the rest of us, it's a thing to be okay with. Um, school gets to start up. We maybe create some order in our lives. But at the end of summer, we're also ending our sermon series. Over the past 14 weeks, we've been doing a sermon series called Gospel Driven, where we have looked at the four, 14 very clear and tight passages of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Gospel passages, as we call them, in the letters of Paul. And the reason why we've done this is because of our vision and values. You see, our vision and values is a gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family, Anglican mission for Vienna. And that part that we talk about being gospel-driven is one we decided we wanted to be able to talk about as a church. And so we talk about being gospel-driven, we want to allow what God has done in Jesus Christ, the gospel, to define our identity and worldview. We want to be the kind of people who appropriate God's grace in our lives every day, which will increase our dependence on God and our humility with one another. We want to grow in our maturity in Christ and our desire for God. We want to integrate this Christianity into our lives. And so, over the past three months, we've been sitting in these passages with two goals that I've had in mind. One is for us to dwell in the gospel, meaning for us to spend week in and week out thinking about Christ and what he has done, thinking about God's love for us, keeping the main thing the main thing, and letting that soak into us. But the second goal has been to become gospel-driven people and a gospel-driven church. And the way we've talked about that is we want to allow the gospel to change our viewpoint and approach to almost everything. And so if you look back over our sermons, some of the things we've talked about is that the gospel changes how we view success, how we deal with suffering, how we approach our work, And of course, how we deal with relationships. And as we finish off, that's our focus today, is how the gospel affects our relationships. In Philippians 2, in verse 2, Paul gives us the, the main point that he's driving at as he's writing to the Philippian church. He says to them, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so if you were looking at what is the theme of this entire section, 
it's that Paul wants the church in Philippi to be unified. He's talking about relational wholeness. And specifically, he's really talking about the church. You have to realize that the, the New Testament would not be written if it wasn't for the fear of fracturing in the church or actual events where the church was fracturing. And so here, Paul is writing saying, I want you guys to stay together, to be of one mind, one in spirit and purpose. But I think that these things that he's talking about in relation to the church can also be applied to any of our relationships. Marriage, family, friendships, workplace, these places where our relationships are constantly being pressured and fracturing. So we're asking a question of how do you cultivate healthy, whole relationships? And in fact, that's going to be our next sermon series. So our next sermon series is to be an extended family, which is also one of our vision and values. And this idea of extended family is that we want to be looking at how we can cultivate positive relationships, how we can, how we can develop positive and healthy relationships in, in a world of individualism. And so we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians for the coming months, which is a church that didn't do relationships very well so that we can see maybe how we should be living those out in our own lives. But in Philippians 2 here, Paul points to this idea of unity, of connection, of oneness, and he gives us some things that are underneath it. And these are the things I want us to be looking at, which is, what is it to be unified? What does it look like? Specifically, he talks about humility and selflessness, things that we don't tend to do naturally. And how is that different than our natural tendency? What is our natural tendency in relationships? And then ultimately to look at how the gospel is necessary to develop this. So let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to look right now at Philippians 2, 3, and 4, two of my favorite verses in the, in the Bible because I learned them and, and have wrestled with them for much of my Christian faith. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, Do nothing from rivalry or selfish ambition. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So I first memorized these verses as a teenager. I was going to go and do work crew at a Young Life camp, which is you spend a month working 12 to 15-hour days not getting paid, and it's awesome. Um, but in order to prep me to go do that, they had work crew training where a guy named Moose was supposed to be training me in how to be a faithful servant so that I would go and work 15-hour days happily. And this was the verse that he had us memorizing, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. I remember having to go through that, reading a book called Improving Your Serve by Chuck Swindoll, which has nothing to do with playing tennis and everything to do with cultivating this sort of way of thinking. And I I realized that, that I needed to think about these things because what it was talking about in these verses, what a book like Improving Your Serve was talking about, had nothing to do with what I was after as a 16 and 17 year old. I had a view, even with a strong Christian mentality, of wanting to be popular, successful, influential, to receive praise and get credit. And so while even as a 16, 17-year-old, I felt called to Christian ministry, my vision of what success looked like was a whole lot more like Billy Graham than Mother Teresa. 
And it was verses like this that began to toss that paradigm out the window. And I didn't like it. I'm still not sure that I do. Because in these, in these verses here, Paul is getting at a fundamental aspect of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and it challenges our very nature. He talks about being humble, about humility. That is not natural. And it wasn't natural back then either. You see, Paul's writing to the Philippians, who were Greco-Roman in their mentality. And the Greek and Roman mentality was an honor and shame culture, which meant you valued honor, you sought glory, and you needed to maintain your status amongst people. You did not want to be low. Humble or humility was not a value commonly understood in any philosophical circles back then. And yet Paul says to the Philippians, humility. It was associated with slaves and women, things that a first century man wanted nothing to do with. And Paul goes on to say the idea of, I want you to think of others as more significant than yourselves. That's actually completely counterintuitive to all of us. And actually, you might even argue that it's biologically not natural to think of others more significant than yourselves. Think about it. Just in biology, right? It's survival of the fittest. The most natural tendency within ourselves is to survive. And so selfishness is inherent to survival in a biological way of thinking. It is absolutely natural for you to be self-focused. And yet, the Bible calls us, God calls us, the gospel calls us to be others-focused. It's quite possible. It's quite possible that our natural tendencies, even if biologically there, are not God's best for us. And that we should see that our natural tendencies, even our physiological ones, might be part of a broken sin nature. So that even when something feels right, is natural, fits in, if God doesn't lay it out for us as his path, then it's not best. And that includes looking out for this guy. So fundamentally, Paul is talking about unity, but behind it he says humility and selflessness are absolutely essential. And what he's getting at, what Paul is getting at, is that the problem of fracturing in relationships is not primarily about disagreements, differences of opinion, heading in different directions, but it's about pride and selfishness. Moises Silva, who's a New Testament scholar, commentating on these passages, wrote this. The true obstacle to unity is not the presence of legitimate differences, but self-centeredness. It's our pride and selfishness, not disagreements that destroy unity. We see this playing out in church fracturing at times, in places like the U.S. Congress, where it's not just differences of opinion, but pride. We see this in marriages that are supposedly just drifting apart, but really it's pride and self-focus. 
Paul goes on to say not only do these things, but then he points us to the model and the way and the power to do these things. And so in in verse 5 and 6, he says, here's what I want you to do. You want to be unified, humility, selflessness. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, this is saying, is God. Don't get hung up on the semantics of the word choice that Paul uses. The commentators are agreed. This is saying Jesus is God, and yet he doesn't count his godness as something to be grasped, which is actually a hard word to translate. It has to do with pirate's booty, not the food, but the thing that when you go into another land and seize and take whatever you want. And so commentators wrestled with a good way to explain this thing, and N.T. Wright, I think, has hit on it correctly. He's a New Testament scholar who said, a great way to translate this is he did not exploit his divinity for his own good. He didn't take advantage of who he was for himself. That's the idea of humility. You see, humility is not just weakness. It's not inability. It's not a wilting flower. Biblical humility, gospel-driven humility, is strength. But strength for your benefit and not my own. Restraining my strength and not using it for my own good only. Paul then goes on to explain the rest of the gospel. In verse 7 and 8 he says, But Jesus Christ made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen to those words that describe the gospel through Jesus Christ. Made himself nothing, a servant, humbled, obedient, death on a cross. This is the creator and Lord of the universe doing these things. He truly is somebody. And we go around so often, even if we don't say it, thinking, do you know who I am? Don't you realize who I am? Whether it's with our spouse or somebody at work or a kid in school, We're always trying to build up our own ego. Don't you know who I am? The one who could have and should have done that most naturally didn't. He humbled himself, became obedient. Jesus is equal to God the Father, but he submits to the will of the Father. He doesn't say, hey, look, God, on this one, you and I are equal, so I'm going to go my own way. He submits to the will of the Father, suffering death on the cross. Why? For two reasons. Because he has a different viewpoint in mind beyond his own good. It's for the glory of the Father and for the benefit and good of others. That's why he humbles himself. Because he's living for the glory of the Father and for the benefit of others. And this is why the Trinity is a perfect example of what unity is about. Unity reflects the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
three beings, separate, unique individuals in one whole. Same love being in full accord and of one mind. And it's like a symphony, right? If you think about a symphony, Beethoven's Ninth is a, is a very powerful symphony, but it starts off with just a few violins, and then it builds with other instruments until there's just this cacophony of beautiful, powerful music. And in not quite a symphony, but in one of the best opening songs of any rock album ever, an album, if you're not sure what that is, ask somebody over 30, okay? You too made the song Where the Streets Have No Name. It starts off with the sound just of a synthesizer keyboard, just kind of this blending noise, until the edge, the guitarist comes in, playing his guitar riff that becomes familiar to anyone who's listened to radio over the past 30 years. And it isn't till about a minute in that the drummer and the bass player start bringing their sound in. And it's not till almost two minutes in that Bono, the most iconic face and voice of one of the most powerful and well-known rock bands in the universe, brings his voice to bear. You see, they're not competing against each other. They're playing their part in order to bring about a better sound. The idea is this. You don't just say, hey, I'm a really good guitar player. I'm going to start playing. Or I'm a good drummer, so I'm going to start drumming. And then that's music. You have to have a common goal, a common purpose. Somebody who's orchestrating this thing. It takes humility killing our pride to find any sense of unity and to not need to be number one or right or best or first. And so cultivating humility is fundamentally critical to developing harmonious relationships. If a marriage is supposed to sound like a symphony, if a group of friends are supposed to look like a wonderful piece of music, if any church is supposed to be the sound of beautiful music, then we need to have a common orchestrator and composer that we're submitting to and recognize that we're playing a part and not just making music by ourselves. And that's why ultimately to develop this sort of unity, we have to kill our pride because pride is the fundamental destroyer of relationships. Think about the way our pride plays out, okay? Pride can't laugh at itself. And here's what I've found for me personally. There's certain areas about my life that I can laugh at with you and certain areas that are off limits. The areas that are off limits are wherever I find my identity, my purpose, my meaning, because when you start laughing at those, you're taking shot at who I am. Pride always needs to get credit. No, no, I was the first one with a Vera Bradley bag. All my friends followed. I found that band. I'm the one who was behind that marketing campaign. We gotta get credit, right? In pride, you even find this is kind of an odd one. A proud person can't receive help. They look like they're humble because they're always giving and serving, but they hate to receive and be dependent on others. Why? Because of pride. It's our pride that can't take criticism because we feel like it's attacking the very soul of me. Pride is not just arrogance. 
can also be neediness and insecurity. Because fundamentally, pride is always thinking of yourself. Humility, and we've talked about this here, and you've heard it elsewhere, humility, the opposite, is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less and of others more. But when we are driven by our pride, we are self-focused and selfish. And the fundamental formula for our relationships is you for me. You for me. In the you for me formula, I am in relationship with you so that I can get something from you. I get affirmation and attention or companionship so I'm not alone or pleasure, sex. I look for you for career advancement because either you're a sale waiting to happen or you're the connection I need to get up in the, on the ladder. I turn to you because you're fun and entertaining. You for me mentality causes me at times to ask these questions when I meet somebody. Do I need them? Do I need to know them? How will he benefit me? Is she fun or a lot of work? Some of you have experienced me relating to you that way, where you know that's what's behind and in my thinking. You for me formula sees relationships as an investment. You know, I'm going to put into this relationship, but I'm looking for a good return. It's transactional. I'll give, but I expect to get something back. You, for me, is seen in the hookup culture where I just want your body, but I don't want you. And quite frankly, as long as I'm getting what I want, I'm good with this thing. But as soon as the mind-blowing sex or as soon as you gain 10 pounds goes away, I'm done. I can find it elsewhere. It turns a human being into a commodity. And that's the you-for-me mentality at its worst. People are a disposable commodity, like a $4 latte. You may really enjoy that latte. It may be a great latte. Nice and warm, gives you that boost of energy, tastes great. But when you're done with it, what do you do? You throw it away. Why? Because tomorrow you can get another one or later today. And so long as you're with it and it's giving you what you want, you enjoy it. And as soon as it's not, you're done. Our pride and self-focused nature is going to fundamentally build you-for-me mentality in relationships. At its worst, people are like a disposable commodity. And even at its best, that you-for-me mentality causes us to be overly critical and overly defensive. Think about it. If, if I'm constantly going around judging people about how much I can get out of them, I'm going to be constantly critical of whether they are going to give me what I want. Are they smart enough to pique my interest? Do they like the same things that I like? Is she pretty enough to hang out with? Not only are we more critical, but we're also more defensive because we know others are judging us the same way. They're trying to figure out whether you're worth their time and effort. The you-for-me mentality is why we are so unwilling to commit to each other. People are not willing to get into marriages. They're not willing to commit to a place or a church. We don't even want to sign up 
on an evite until the night before once we've found out who's there and whether it's worth our time. Unwilling to commit and unwilling to sacrifice for one another. The you for me mentality is why lasting relationships are so rare. And, and my question is, should it be different for Christians? Could it possibly be different in a church? Could we develop relationships with people that don't look like us and give us exactly what we want? Somebody who's older than us, not as smart as us, not as interesting as us. Could we have more diverse relationships? Could we be more committed and sacrificial with one another? Can we actually be humble and selfless and interdependent? course, what we need to do is cultivate humility, not pride. Humility, that selfless and others-focused nature of living, that instead of you for me is me for you being the fundamental framework. Me for you does what Jesus does. When you look at that gospel passage that we looked at about what Jesus does, Jesus is fundamentally talking about me for you and asking the question, What do they truly need? How can I humble myself and sacrifice myself and give them what they truly need? That's what we should be asking about everyone around us. Me for you doesn't grasp and exploit our strengths for our own good. So think about that. What would it look like to use your talents, your career, your family, your wealth, your intelligence, whatever strengths you have, not just for your own benefit, but primarily for the benefit of others. That's what humility is. Me for you is others-oriented. As we've mentioned here before, Susan Yates uh, put it this way once, it's walking into a room and saying, there you are, not here I am. And of course, you can do here I am two different ways. You can do that by coming in and being the center of attention, or you can do it by walking over against the wall and waiting for people to notice you. Either way, you've become the most important person in the room to you. A there you are steps in and says, I want to know you. I care about you. You know what's great about being with somebody who's actually humble? One, you don't really notice that they're humble, but you leave feeling better about yourself because they've invested in you when they're with you. When you're with somebody who's proud, you feel worse about yourself. Me for you moves us to compassion so that we care about others regardless of the challenges they're going through, no matter how minor. See, when it's me for you, I'm not trying to compare my bad day with your bad day. Oh, you you had a bad test today. Sorry, well, let me tell you about my day. Me for you sits with the person in their bad test because you're focused on them and not on you. And it's even willing to do something that I find very difficult, celebrate and rejoice with others when they succeed. The humble person who is selfless and others-focused is able to find joy in your joy, even if it means that I don't have the same thing.
me for you, gets right at the idea that Jesus said when he said it is more blessed to give than receive. Sometimes in a church, right before they take up an offering, and we've done that here, we say, and remember, as Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than receive. And I know what's going on inside your head. Yeah, right. It's better to get than to give. Everyone knows that. It's unnatural to think that giving is better, other than in some, you know, like idealistic sort of way, right? It takes faith to believe that pouring yourself out, that giving of yourself, that focusing on others, that using your strengths for the benefit of others is actually the better way. Because everything about us is trying to defend, build up, protect me. It takes faith in God that what he says about pouring ourselves out is more satisfying and more lasting than the life lived for me alone. And that's why the only power to do this me for you life is in Christ. Only when Christ dwells in us, when we enter in faith into Christ Jesus, when the gospel begins transforming us, only then can we begin to live this way and develop the sort of relational unity and wholeness that this is talking about here. And it's not just Jesus as an example. It's also Jesus crucified and risen for us as the means and power of us being able to do this. In our confession of faith, which we use here in in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, this is not meant to be Jesus as an example. This is meant to be the gospel. And so what you get in this is incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and glorification. This is a four or five sentences to say the gospel. And it's what God has done for humanity. The gospel has righted us to God, assured us of eternity, and it is the only way to open the door to this sort of humility and selflessness that is not possible on our own power. The gospel drives our humility and our selflessness and the ability to be unified. Paul says in verse 5, I want your mind, I want your mind to be the same that is yours in Christ Jesus. What that means is this your relational kind of connection to one another, whether it's friends or husband and wife or work or students that hang out together or a church, your mindset should be built out of the mind that you have in Christ. The spirit renewed, Christ filled mind. Only in that mind. Can you live this way? Because as you enter into faith in Christ, you find that your desires change. That your desires, as you enter into the gospel and sit under it and let that change your thinking, it begins to be that you start living for God's glory and for others' good and not just your own. And this is because the gospel fundamentally changes our self-orientation. The gospel says this, you are sinful, more sinful than you're willing to admit. And that is incredibly humbling. It means that there's no person on earth that I can walk up to if I really believe that part of the gospel. There's no person on earth I can walk up to and say, I'm greater than you. It also means there's nothing I have to hide or defend 
I am deeply, deeply sinful and broken. Pride is always trying to be independent. Humility recognizes a need to be dependent on the only one who accepts and forgives us so that we can maybe be interdependent and truly in love and unity with one another. The gospel gives us not only humility but confidence, the surety that I am loved and more loved in Jesus Christ than I dare to imagine, which means I have matter, I matter, I have purpose, I have meaning, I have an identity that is given me in Jesus Christ. I don't need to steal it from you or earn it or defend it. It's not about my success at work. It's not about what I get in relationships from you. Everything I need, I have in Christ. And that's why verse one, starting this whole thing out, verse one talks about finding the place to live this way is when we experience God in Jesus Christ. We experience the love of Christ. We participate with the Spirit, it says in verse one, so that we experience grace and it increases our ability to be filled with grace. The gospel fills us to overflowing so that we finally have something to pour out. So are you hungry or are you full? A man who's been stuffed at Thanksgiving dinner, right? A a guy who's eaten everything he possibly can at Thanksgiving has no problem when somebody else asks for a little bit of turkey and sweet potatoes. But to a starving man, to a man who's not had a meal in days, even the most full and bountiful table may not be enough. And every knock at the door or any person who tries to pull up their chair to the table is a threat. Our true hunger, our true hunger is for God. And the gospel says that apart from Christ, we are starving people. We devour the approval, the success, the pleasure, the power, the love we can get from other people. And because we're looking for it from others and others are looking for it from us, we count other people as either a threat or a commodity. Somebody trying to steal what I have or somebody that I need to steal from. But when our souls are filled by God, which happens when you believe the gospel, all of a sudden we're able to give, to forgive when offended, to celebrate with somebody else, to be compassionate and caring. We're able to praise and encourage others. We're able to love and love some more. We don't see others as a threat because we're full. God has filled us like a man at the dinner table on Thanksgiving. And we're now able to even look outside of ourselves and say, who else wants some food? There's plenty on the table. Come on in. Only when we find our deepest spiritual needs met in Christ, only when we've experienced love, grace, forgiveness, acceptance in Christ, only when we found our true identity, meaning, and purpose through Christ, only then can we live me for you. Only then can we be humble and selfless, one in spirit and purpose. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you humbled yourself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, all for our good. 
I pray that as we reflect on that, it would draw us to worship, to love and be excited about the God who loves us so much. And I pray that Jesus Christ in us would push us out of ourselves into humble selflessness with one another, that maybe we can experience a bit of what's in store in heaven that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit experience even now. In your name we pray, amen. that one more time. 